what the overall industry is seeing is that we do need to focus on producing oil, natural gas in a profitable way, but also in a responsible way. So if you are trying to lower emissions, hydraulic fracturing is a great place to start and electric fracturing is currently the best way to do that. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we're talking about electrifying the fracking sector, how the lines between electricity and oil and gas are blurring more than ever. I'm lucky to have spent parts of my career in both, and one of the joys of doing this podcast is introducing experts from all energy sectors into a single forum, kind of like a host at a rehearsal dinner. I remember the first time I ever set foot on a frack site. It was March 2011. We were on Ross Perot's property a few miles south of Texas Motor Speedway. The most prominent equipment on site when fracking are the pressure pumping units. They're typically painted red and line up near the center of the pad around the wellhead, which has already been drilled. From the air, they look like a rib cage. From the ground, it's a little less poetic, loud, smoky, and smelly. I ask my guests a lot of questions about these units because, to be honest, I never got too close to them, despite having probably visited dozens of pads over the years. The big innovation my guests and some other companies have developed are E-fleets, electrically driven pumping units. My guest says they are quieter, cleaner, and much more powerful. They load up two pumps on each trailer. The electric motors also have more torque and offer more precision than the transmission-driven diesel variety. I also take an opportunity in this episode to explore some bigger issues. My favorite is the possibility this could deliver for electric utilities to contribute in a meaningful way to the oil field sector. These pressure pumping units consume a lot of power, between 20 and 30 megawatts, better than using diesel, and that could create a huge opportunity to send line power to a frack pad. The second issue we discuss is that the oil and gas sector is emerging from another Another painful slump. As a vendor for the oil companies, what we call EMPs or exploration and production companies, low oil prices can be brutal. Those that survive have to adjust to ever-shrinking margins, and that typically leads to a frack pad filled with depreciated, worn-out equipment. I recently advised a guy in Wisconsin who wanted to start treating fracks with chlorine dioxide, a biocide that's pretty common these days. He'd build some gorgeous new trailers, probably the best I've ever seen. But if he started right now funding both his operations and paying the note on his new trailers, he'd never be able to compete with the surplus of vendors out there who've covered their capital costs in 2013. My guests and I also discussed the pressures to be greener in an industry that has largely been able to ignore this kind of pressure from Twitter, for instance. A vendor in Midland, Texas, typically has one goal on his mind, get the stuff out of the ground. But my guest says the pressure to be more environmentally conscious has started permeating places like the Permian. But, he says, it's this external pressure that their pressure pumping units are built to answer. My guest today is Nick Rupelt, Sales Director for Evolution Well Services, an e-fleet company based in Houston. Nick says the company got its start in Canada. That shell play didn't work out, but the technology held promise, and now they're operating across the United States. Having worked in both utilities and oil field companies, I've wanted to know more about how Evolution is powering their e-fleets. They're using microturbines on site from a sister company. We discussed microturbines back in episode 24. I figured the natural gas was coming from a CNG trailer, but I 
I was truly surprised when Nick told me that they're almost always using natural gas from the nearby formations, which is commonly called field gas. This can cut down considerably on flaring, which listeners know I hate, and close the loop to make this energy production truly locally sourced. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Nick Ruppelt. Nick Rappel, Sales Director for Evolution Well Services, and Nick, I'll let you explain it. Why would electric pumping units be an advantage on a frack site? Hey, thanks for having me on. So electric frack is really taking over the pressure pumping industry right now, where historically you have diesel powered equipment that has been used for decades in the oil field, but is really becoming antiquated from an efficiency standpoint, but also an emission standpoint. And it's similar to essentially every industrial industry that is currently trying to introduce electric powered equipment. We see it in our everyday lives from companies like Tesla, but also when you look at the oil field, people are starting to convert their compression stations to electric. Almost every industry is trying to bring in the added reliability, efficiency, and then also the potential to lower emissions into their operation. And how did Evolution get started with this? Our company actually started in Canada, and this predates me, so I can't take any credit for the success here, but it started up in Canada where there was a project hosted where they were looking for any game-changing technologies that could help impact the shale industry up there. And it was funded as a project where mobilizations weren't going to happen very often, and they wanted to have a low emission, lower fuel costs, and a high efficiency solution. And they made this electric frack solution. This is probably back in 2011, 2013. But in 2013, that project actually didn't move forward, not due to the technology, but just due to the basin not taking off. So our ownership took the technology back down to the United States and spent about five years redesigning the technology to be built for the United States shale basins, which means fast mobilizations, high efficiencies, everything like that. And it's really been rapid growth and success since then. Yeah. So Nick, where is the electricity coming from? Are you generating it on site? And then also, how much draw do you typically need? When you say electric frack, electricity doesn't come from thin air, right? So we do have to generate the electricity. And when you look at hydraulic fracturing, it really is a large power draw compared to many other applications. A drilling rig, for example, might be somewhere between two to four megawatts. But when you're looking at a frack fleet, and especially with high intensity jobs that are starting to become more and more challenging, you're looking at 20 plus megawatts, up to 30 megawatts of power sometimes for a hydraulic fracturing job. The power that we use comes from a mobile turbine package that is on pad. It's developed by our sister company called Dynamis Power Solutions. And what this does is it takes in natural gas, typically from our customer's well site. It's often called field gas or associated gas. And then we will burn it through the turbine generator to generate electricity at 13,800 volts to power our equipment. And by contrast, the diesel pumping units. And I remember the first time I ever went out to a frack site, the diesel pumper units are going. I had a great shot of just the vapor coming off of those units. That was a picture I took in 2011. Just so the audience can understand, the diesel is driving the pumps directly. They're not like a locomotive powering an electric generator first, right? That's what's mechanically happening. That's exactly right. So on a traditional conventional diesel fleet, it's a diesel engine that's coupled with a transmission to drive the pumps. It's really a mechanical process there, whereas on our side, we're using a turbine that powers a generator to create the electricity. So like a Tesla, I assume there's more torque with the electric pumps than the piston-driven, transmission-driven variety, right? 
Yes, that is correct. And also, I would say probably even more benefit would be the essentially unlimited ability to control. On a diesel fleet, you're using a transmission, right? So just like in your car, well, I guess manual transmissions aren't around too much anymore. But if you go back 20 or 30 years here and you have a manual transmission, you're switching gears. Just like that, that's how they operate in the frack world with diesel fleets. So if you want to increase your rate on a pumping job by one barrel minute, it can be challenging because you only can go up in certain increments of gears. Whereas on electric fleet, we're using variable frequency drives and you have nearly infinite control of how you want to pump and what rates you would like to pump at. And just to add the complexity, I was thinking about it. It's a transmission on each unit on the diesel variety. So does that mean that you got, for instance, 12 diesel units, each with their own transmission working together? Yes, that's exactly right. And it's typically substantially more than 12. I would say it's oftentimes roughly 20 diesel pumping units on a pad, whereas we're going to bring a higher power density unit. Yeah. So I would imagine... All that equipment, all those transmission times, all those units, and also you think your torque is better. Most of the room on an active frack pad, I would say, is taken up with these pumper units lined up in the center. Can you use fewer since the torque is higher? Yes. In general, a diesel pumping unit is roughly 2,500 horsepower. The ones we are bringing out, we put two pumps onto a single trailer because the high power density of the electric motors, and we're using 7,000 horsepower electric motors. So when you look at that, it's roughly two or three X what you would have on each trailer and typically only bring eight pump trailers on a pad. And yes, that is exactly right, that the majority of space taken up on a hydraulic fracturing pad is the pumping unit. So it's pretty dramatic decrease in footprint of the pad. And that's important, not just from a pad construction, but also just personnel safety and the simplicity of operation mobilization and it really impacts the operation on a holistic level. Essentially, every part of the operation benefits when you have a smaller footprint on pad. Right. And look, I started out in, you know, South Texas where there's wide open spaces, but I also spent a lot of time in the Marcellus where they're, you know, putting these pads on top of mountaintops and there's far less room to maneuver. I mean, those pads could be pretty tight in some of those places. And that's exactly right. Frequently we're on almost mountaintops in the Marcellus and Utica shale basins in the Northeast, and it really impacts our customers in a positive way when we can reduce the size of those pads and operate. And a smaller footprint also impact the communities around less. Those are oftentimes in neighborhoods or in local communities. Yep. The smaller impact we can make and be a better neighbor to local communities, the better for us. And it's much better for our industry as well. Your website said the diesel units also require what's called hot fueling. Explain to everyone else what that is. Yes. So on a diesel fleet, you are going to bring a tanker full of diesel to pad. And just for some scale numbers, over a year, you could use upwards of 15 million gallons of diesel on on a single hydraulic fracturing fleet. So we're not talking like your car, you drive to work every day. You know, we're talking true industrial scale use of diesel. And because you have an engine on each one of these, say 20 pumping units, you have to get fuel to each one. What they'll do is you'll bring typically a single tanker and then you'll run fuel hoses to each one of those pumps. And as they're consuming it, it is constantly filling up each one of the pumping units with diesel. So that essentially means diesel is spread throughout the entire pad and you're also filling 
handling running engines with diesel at the same time. So similar to when you're filling up your car at a gas station, it typically says shut your engine off. Because of the operation, you can't do that on a diesel fracturing fleet. So it's historically known as a major safety risk, and it's caused numerous fracturing fires where the entire fleets will burn down. With our operation, we're able to eliminate that safety risk, that risk not only to personnel, but to the equipment. And what we do is we're bringing in field gas or CNG or LNG, and we will operate it on the side of pad with a single turbine solution with the right safety gear to ensure that the operation is safe, our people are safe, and the local community around it is safe. There are at least two other companies out there like you that have these E-fleets, as they're called. Are you all buying these units from a third-party fabricator, or are you building these yourself from your own designs? So I would say the biggest advantage that Evolution Well Services has as a company is that we are vertically integrated. When our company started, this wasn't a commercially available technology, and we had to come up with the idea, design it in-house, and then also build it in-house. Our company is not just focused on operating fleets, but we still to this day design and build our own equipment in-house, ranging from the pumping units to the turbine packages as well through our sister company, Dynamics Power Solutions. So to answer your question is no, we don't buy them from a third party, and that's really what is made our company special is we're able to operate equipment that we know inside and out and we know how to operate it best and it really leads to the high efficiencies that you can achieve with electric fracturing. Sure. And then from a sales perspective, how much are you typically charging operators compared to the diesel powered fleets? So to answer that one, I will say that the industry has undergone some serious challenges, not just the last 12 months since the COVID crisis here when oil went negative, but even before that, the pressure pumping industry has really been under pressure from an oversupply perspective pricing, and then also demand perspective. But our goal is to be at market price. Now, that does make for challenging investments in markets like this. But now that oil prices are coming back up into the $60 barrel, we're really bullish about our growth ramping up again. And we really see a lot of potential in the next 12 months here to rapidly grow the business again. You bet. And look, I was asking that question to lead into the next point I wanted to make about the health of the frac services industry. Now, look, I spent a lot of years on the water transfer, water treatment side. It seems like as the years go on, this becomes more of a race to the bottom. I was shocked, for instance, to find how little folks were charging for biocide compared to what they were charging when I started there about nine years ago. So what you end up is with units are just more worn out on the frac sites. There's no money because you're just so on the margins to replace that old equipment. Is it important to keep these rates for companies like yours at a level that can still encourage innovation and reliable service? Because you just don't want to have a ton of worn out equipment out on the sites eventually, right? Yes, completely agree with you. And then also innovation needs to continue happening, right? So that the industry can keep pushing forward. What I'll say is the industry is certainly oversupplied from our perspective right now. And I think from any pressure pumpers perspective, they see a substantial amount of oversupply in the market. But there really is a bifurcation happening where EMPs are under a lot of pressure to only use the highest efficiency fleet. And then they're also under pressure to do it in the most responsible way in terms of emissions and impacting the local community. So there is certainly an oversupply in the diesel pressure pumping market, but on the clean, low emission side of the pressure pumping market, there really is not too much supply and there is a lot of demand right now. So it certainly helps us from that perspective that there's only so many electric fleets out there. Most EMPs are truly seeing the benefits of the electric fleets and it's creating a substantial demand for those versus the diesel fleets in the market right now. Right. And so I'm curious on your website, you point out how many gallons of 
diesel, you're saving customers. You're also quieter and you're a smaller footprint, but is that always enough to make the sale? You'd say that you guys are pretty cost effective, but is that really the only driver cost right now? I mean, what else is really driving people's decisions to go with you as opposed to the other folks? So when the company first started, what the fleet offered EMPs at the beginning was almost purely fuel savings. The cost for a unit of natural gas versus a unit of diesel is drastically lower, especially when you're using it from your own production facilities before it goes to market. That was the main driver was how can we save upwards of 90% on fuel? But over the last, I would say, 24 months, there's been a dramatic shift in focus to the greener completions, to how can we complete wells in a cost-effective way, but also do it in an emissions-friendly way. When you couple the cost savings with the lower emissions, with the quiet fleet, with the smaller footprint, there really is a legitimate reason to switch to this technology. And I think that's why you're starting to see it pop up in so many analyst calls, so many earnings calls, and really become a focus for pressure pumping industry, but also for the EMPs. Because when you look at emissions profile of an EMP, facilities and Production are certainly the number one focus on how you can lower your emissions. But after that, there aren't many other large-scale operations other than fracturing that really move the needle on emissions. You know, we're looking at 20, 30 megawatts of power, whereas a drilling rig is only two or three megawatts of power. So if you are trying to lower emissions, hydraulic fracturing is a great place to start, and electric fracturing is currently the best way to do that. You mentioned it earlier, but we hear a lot about the pressures to be low carbon, ESG, et cetera, on companies, especially those prone to get piled on with pressure from Twitter, right? So how mm-hmm. much pressure are these companies feeling to reduce greenhouse gases, if any? You know, look, San Angelo is a long way from San Francisco, you know. Uh, <laughs> how is this pressure on carbon affecting your industry? And you said it's changed very quickly, right? Yes, exactly. And I think each company is in a different situation, right? You have companies that are private, and it really comes down to what their stakeholders think. And then you have large companies that are often public, and they have a different set of stakeholders. But I think what we see and what the overall industry is seeing is that we do need to focus on producing oil, natural gas in a profitable way, but also in a responsible way. And that's how our industry is going to thrive and how it's going to survive long into the future. It's no longer just buzzwords. It really is companies setting concrete targets that require gradual emissions reduction over the next few years into 2025 targets, 2030 targets, you are going to start seeing quite a few drastic measures taken by companies on the operational side to reduce their carbon intensity per barrel oil or natural gas produced out there. Yeah. Look, I spent some time working with electric utilities. And one of the things I love doing with this podcast is bridging that gap between the electric folks and the oil and gas folks. It's all energy, right? You mentioned that your units can draw from natural gas, even natural gas on site at a pad. Is there a way to draw from line power if it's available? Yes, our fleets are capable of that. What I will say is when you're talking 20, 30 megawatts of power draw, there aren't too many grids out there that can handle that because it's not just pulling 30 megawatts of power. It's also the fact that you're going to ramp down to zero nearly instantaneously at the end of a stage or end of a pad. So it's the drastic swings in power draw. But our fleets are capable of it. And what we see being more feasible in the near term and really a great way to start bridging that lower emissions future is to potentially add on some level of grid power, not full grid, but almost act as like a peaking plant to where your turbine is running at a certain load and then you phase in grid power where you can and where the power is available 
available so you can create a greener blend of power generation. But with that being said, when you look at the grid currently versus how we generate power on pad, we're using clean burning natural gas through a turbine generator. And the ultimate mix of power generation on the grid, depending on where you're at in the United States, oftentimes it could be even cleaner just to use the turbine power generation. Now, ultimately, that'll shift to where more and more renewables will be added to the grid and it'll be better in every single state to use grid power. But currently, using natural gas and a turbine is a pretty green way to get that much electricity. But we certainly do see grid phasing in being a great solution to help these ENPs lower their overall environmental footprint. And then finally, another thing I talk about a lot is flaring from natural gas operations using more energy on site. That's really cool that you're able to actually use the natural gas on the pads. So how are you able to reduce flaring as we see a lot of? So this is one very unique thing about Evolution Well Services is, to my knowledge, we are the only company running on 100% field natural gas for all of our fleets. Most companies these days are running, if they do want to run on natural gas, they run on compressed natural gas, which is a great solution, but it does add to the supply chain from an environmental perspective and also a cost perspective. We are typically pulling off our customers' gas facilities, and this does help them use the natural gas in their basin before they would sell it out to market. Market, or in some cases, it could be that they would flare it. I will say our specific customers are really leaders in the industry and have reduced their flaring dramatically and are really setting the tone for what a great EMP looks like from an environmental perspective. But regardless, using field gas is certainly the environmentally friendly way to go. Just to give you a, an example of how impactful this is, not just because there's less carbon when you burn a unit of natural gas for diesel, but think about this. If we're pumping in Midland, Texas, we are getting oil out of the ground. You would send that oil by pipeline back to, say, the Gulf Coast or Oklahoma to a refinery, then if you wanted to use that on your diesel fracturing fleet, you are then going to either have to truck or pipe that all the way back to Midland to some sort of central station, and then you're going to truck it to pad to be burned. If you want to talk about an inefficient process, using diesel on anything in Midland or the Permian Basin or essentially any shale basin in the U.S. is extremely inefficient. So if we have locally producing wells that are putting off natural gas right now, why would you not want to use that and be the most efficient and lean with your operation, let alone it also is a much cleaner burning fuel source than diesel in itself from a carbon perspective. <laughs> That's a great point. And it's something that I think I pointed out when people first would come out to frack sites and see those diesel pumpers. And the diesel pumpers all run from diesel probably came from Venezuela. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. You never know where it's coming from. So if it's coming from international markets, it would make the supply chain even more complex and more, I guess, carbon heavy. Nick, I'm going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting with natural gas. I think natural gas has an extremely bright future, especially when you look internationally. The majority of countries around the world are still being powered by coal power. Using natural gas, you can lower your carbon footprint by roughly 50%. Now, now, do I think it's always going to be the solution? Likely not. And hopefully we can get to a place where it's eventually running on renewables. But I think over the next few decades, natural gas is where the world is going to focus and where we're going to see the biggest benefits in carbon reduction. Crude oil. 
also another one that is extremely important to the world. I think one thing people don't consider when they hear crude oil is they purely think transportation. But I'm sitting at my desk right now using a keyboard that is made of plastic. My phone has plastics in it. I think people, when they hear crude oil, it gets a bad name because people are very focused on electric power transportation right now. But number one, almost every car currently runs on crude oil. And then also, I think crude oil is extremely vital to almost everything we wear, use, touch throughout the day. And it really creates products that we need and will need long into the future. Nuclear extremely efficient. If the public opinion can get past the safety concern, it really is a fantastic way to generate clean electricity. Coal, and I'll add with carbon capture. From a process perspective, a great way to generate power, but it certainly is starting to see the end of its life cycle in the power world and utility space due to the carbon output of the fuel source. But it still is an important part of the grid right now. What I really think is going to happen is natural gas is going to rapidly take over and then eventually renewables will take over. But I think you're going to continue seeing what we've seen over the last decade where natural gas is really starting to displace those coal-powered facilities. Wind. I'm a big fan of wind power. Originally came from the turbine industry, and I think wind is an extremely beneficial way to generate electricity, but you certainly do have some challenges in terms of you have to be in a place that has wind, and then also you have to have ways to store energy so that it can work in a continuous environment. But I think it's really impressive, all the new technologies coming out from blade designs and making that solution much more efficient than it used to be. Solar. I would say the exact same commentary to wind, where it really is impressive how rapid the technology is changing and becoming more and more efficient from a technology standpoint, but also, especially on solar from a cost perspective, it's really dropping and making it feasible. Now, I'm not sure either of those are completely feasible without subsidies today, but it's certainly getting there at a rapid pace. Hydroelectric. I grew up in Kentucky and living on the Ohio River in Louisville, Kentucky. There's a dam there that is hydroelectric plant, and that is a fantastic source of renewable energy that is pretty efficient and can provide some other benefits to the environment as well. Geothermal. Geothermal is getting a lot of buzz right now, and I actually have two very close friends of mine that are starting up a geothermal company. I'm convinced this is going to be a great way to generate electricity. I know it has worked globally on a residential scale, and I think we're going to start seeing as investment dollars come in, you're going to start seeing some great ways to harness that electricity, even on an industrial utility scale moving forward, too. Energy storage. A place we need innovation, like we were talking about with wind and solar. They're great solutions, but without energy storage, they're not necessarily practical solutions. If we can get the cost down, whether it be batteries or mechanical storage, I think this is going to be a vital mix of utility scale power going forward in the future. Electric vehicles. Just like with Evolution Well Services, where there's so many benefits of electric motors versus using reciprocating type engines, I think that's really the big benefit of electric vehicles. Right now, you're charging it with a grid that is dominated by coal and and natural gas. From a technology standpoint, I think there's so many benefits of going electric. And then also, it does give a lot of potential down the road as the grid becomes more and more green. Energy efficiency. Another one where there's going to be a huge focus is all the ESG focus and pressures come down on every industry here. The more energy efficient we can make everything, that's really, in my opinion, the best thing we can focus on in every industry right now is whenever we are using energy, let's use it in the most efficient way. And that's a fantastic way to lower our overall carbon footprint as well. And then finally, fusion power. 
I personally don't know nearly enough about this, but actually one of my very good friends is actually starting to work on a project in this. So I hope to learn a lot more and hopefully it makes financial sense and technology sense because I know this has always been the ultimate goal for everyone in energy generation. Hopefully we can start seeing some successes. All right, Nick Rappel, Evolution Well Services. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you taking time to talk about this and look forward to hearing the recorded podcast. That was Nick Rappelt, Sales Director for Evolution Well Services, an e-fleet operator based in Houston. Nick says Evolution began operations in the U.S. in 2016, and as of this recording, operates seven fleets around the country. I want to thank Nick for his time, as well as David McGowan at American Petroleum Institute for sending me an article about this technology. You can find plenty of pictures for this episode on energy-cast.com, as well as on Instagram and Parler at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 115. Be sure to join us next week when I host a panel about available options for the future of our coal fleet. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time. <laughs>